Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and ten-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. This is your host, Jason Troy. And I have a fantastic guest for today. His name is Byron Reese. He's an entrepreneur, a futurist, and the publisher of GigaOM. He's going to talk to you about robots being conscious, the role of artificial intelligence, and why it's here today, and a lot of his entrepreneurial journey. And he throws a lot of great nuggets out on that. So you will have a great time today listening to this interview and take away a lot of things you can use in your life. So let's get right to the interview. I have a fantastic guest here today, a futurist and a fascinating person, Byron Reese. And uh, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And we're going to have some great conversations and you're going to learn a lot about what's happening in today and tomorrow and things you should keep track of. So I just want to ask you a little bit of background for people like, you know, where did you grow up and a little bit about your background and, you know, kind of how you got on this path. Well, I grew up in a small town in East Texas. Grew up on a farm, uh, and then moved to, a, you know, a big city. I got into business, uh, really far back. I, my mom, uh, wanted the numbers painted on our curb. So she went and bought the stencils and a can of spray paint. And she said, paint the number on our curb. So I painted it. And Mr. Roland, the neighbor across the street, saw me. He was like, while you're out here, would you just do that? And so I painted his, and he gave me five bucks. This is in 1980 money, mind you. Five dollars for like a minute's worth of work. And like, all of a sudden, ching, this thing went off. And I was like, that, that's like, that's teenager money, right? And uh, so I started going door to door with my stencils and my can of spray paint, charging five dollars to shh. And I made like a kid-sized fortune with that. So that was how I got into business and um, uh, how I, where I grew up. And then you went on to school and went on to college. I did. I uh, went to Rice University where I met my wife. Obviously, she was not my wife at the time. It wasn't one of those situations. But I met the woman who would become my wife. And how did you meet her? Uh, well, she was a, a fellow student. Okay. We had the same parole officer. That helped, too. Well, yeah, that we, does. We did not really have the same parole officer. They were, they were different. Well... Um, and then uh, we married right out of college. I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those things that we moved to the Bay Area to make our fortune. And, uh, and then eventually we decided to start a family. So we moved back to where our family was and near Austin, Texas, which is where we reside today. And you did some fascinating things in college. You started the debate program? Um, you could say that. You could say that. When I went to Rice University, oddly, they didn't have debate. And I came out of high school with four years of debate. Uh, and so that was what I, kind of one of the things I did. And so we went to uh, the administration at Rice and said, somehow or another, we don't have a debate program. Uh, can you fund us? And they funded us. They gave us a bunch of money to go to tournaments, which travel costed basically what yes. it cost you. And we did really well. And so they gave us more money and let us hire faculty and all of that. 
So that's pretty entrepreneurial as well. I mean, starting. I didn't think so at the time, but I, I guess so. I mean, uh, I didn't think so at the time. It was just like, oh, I don't know, where is it? Right. Um, and so yes, and then I, I think what what you said earlier is I, I also ran for Houston School Board when I was. Well, why did you? I mean, that's curiosity. Like that's a pretty interesting thing to run for a school board when you're in college. I mean, and what what possessed you to like do that? Did you want to create some change or something that you saw or what? Um, so it was in Houston, so it was big, and uh, and it was district, so I had a district that I was running in, and it was a vacant, it was an open seat, and I saw that, and uh, and thought to myself, you know, it's strange that you have all these school boards, and they never, ever had a single student on them, and so I said, I should just run and be like the student voice uh, of, of, of it, and uh, there were six candidates, I came in, I believe, third out of six, and it got lots of endorsements and, and all of that. I didn't have any money though. I mean, I, I didn't have obviously any money. And, uh, so, um, I, I, it was, it was word of, word of mouth. We didn't have word of mouth back then. It was all just word of mouth. And, uh, and that's, that's what I did. And that was a long, long, long time ago. I, I hardly even, you know, it just seems like a, another world. So in your career, when is the first, I mean, I know you've had, you've worked for a many different <clears throat> companies. When It sounds like I can't hold a job. Uh, uh, well, you know, I think it's more of an entrepreneurial path okay. where you're working in a different stuff. Maybe so, I can't. I don't know. Well, it's, it's all right, too. That's, I think that's part of life. Sometimes we just have to yeah. do what we're good at. So is the first company you founded Hot Data? Was that? That is true. And how did you end up? finding that? And that's back in 97. So back in the, <sighs> the beginning of the gold rush, really. You know, it's funny because at the time I thought we were late. I thought, so here was my thesis back, back then. I said, wow, the internet's out. And the only way people use the internet is they like use it through a browser. And that's so cumbersome. Like, what's this browser thing all about? What I really want is I want all the apps I use to, to connect to the internet. I want my, my, my spreadsheet to update my stock prices in it. If that's what I have, I want my, uh, my contact manager. If somebody moves, I want it to update them. And so I said, I'm going to build the, the, the stuff that um, that allows applications to talk to data over the internet. And, and and I just was like, oh my gosh, we have to do this quickly, or somebody else is going to do it. Which, by the way, is almost always not true, I mean, in my experience. When you're in it, you feel like everything's urgent. But in reality, 20 years have passed, and there's still not somebody who's, who's kind of owns that space. And yes. so I raised a lot of money. You could, you know... A, a, 20 something kid from nowhere could, uh, could raise $20 million, uh, from, from venture and, uh, and make a go of it. This was the 90s. And that company ultimately was sold. And I started another one called Pagewise. I started that in February of 2000. Uh, the crash happened in April of 2000. Yep. So I kind of ducked in and raised a little money right before that happened. And the thing is, is that I think, I think overall I fail, well, I don't think that now, I fail at almost everything I do. And I wish there was like a humorous thought, uh, but there's not one. Um, I typically, uh, fail at most things I do, but I make up for it. I do a lot of things. And so PageWise was a company that I started with a thesis and then a different thesis and then a different one and a different one and a different one and a different one until we finally found something that, um, that worked really well. I got into video before YouTube even existed. And I had a profitable business. And I just pushed all the money into uh, video because I was like, I know for a fact people would rather watch something than read it. I just know that. 
And so people, video is going to be huge. And so we ended up building a library of how-to videos that uh, have twice as many views as Justin Bieber has. I mean, it's That's that amazing. Big. I know. Because um, how many billions do you use? Uh, three or so. Three yeah, it's, it's, it's a, that's a big number. But isn't, I think one of the lessons then is it's important for an entrepreneur to kill ideas quickly, right? I mean, I, you, you know, we hear all everyone persevere, be determined, and yes, that's true. But also, I mean, in your instance, if you try all these different things, all you really need is one home run. Right. I, and the I more things it. you try, the more opportunities that you have, right. and especially to kill it. At some point, you have to know when the writing is a wall. A lot of times people don't, and they just keep trying to run that idea um, and it can take, you know, years or decades out of their life. Yeah, I hesitate to say any kind of people want to people want to distill business down usually to a set of rules. And it's like if you obey these rules, uh, you're gonna be successful. And they tell people that. And 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 I think it's wrong. I think that it gives people the the impression that um running a business is a, is, is is kind of memorizing a series of do's and don'ts. And if you, if you kind of keep all those in your head, uh, you're going to be successful. But what I learned early on was that if you, if you listen to conventional wisdom, like, um, look before you leap. You've heard that before, right? Yes. Is that fair advice? Uh, I, a lot of times you just have to take a leap. That's the other one, right? He who hesitates is lost. Yes. Uh, some people say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But the opposite of that, which is nothing ventured, nothing gained. And so it's all like almost every every piece of advice somebody gives you it has an exact opposite. So you say, well, is it all worthless? And it's like, no, no. The skill is knowing when you should look before you leap and when he who hesitates is lost. And that's it. Because there it, and anybody who tries to tell you that, oh, it's, it's just simple. They they didn't, you know, you, you take a company that failed and it's like they didn't change with the times. They didn't change with the times. And then you look at a company that was really adaptive, and you say, they didn't stick to the knitting. They should have stuck to the knitting. And it, it's, it's this retroactive kind of causality where it, we comfort ourselves, and it's like, life's really simple. It's just a few rules. And it, what happens is people forget those rules every now and then, and then they have failure. And uh, that is, a, I don't, in my experience, that's not how things work. And so... How do you acquire that skill, or what would you tell someone about what to do to get good at that and being able to navigate between, you know, both sides and all the different possibilities that you could do. I don't know. I mean, I always hesitate to give people advice because I fail at almost everything I do. Um, that being said is, and the thing is, is that businesses that work. So here's two ideas. Uh, one of them is <clears throat> there used to be singing telegrams, right? You see those in sitcoms. Yes. And I had this idea. I was like, hey, why don't I bring that back? And what I'll do is you pay $10 and you schedule it on a website and then you pick the little song and then somebody on that day calls that person up and sings them a happy birthday and it's $10, only twice as much as a card cost. It's like, so that's an idea. And then I said, you know, when I was a kid, people used to send, my mom and dad used to write me letters from Santa. And it was so cool. And I read you could like send letters from North Pole, Alaska, and they could stack. And I said, what about a service where you just go and uh, you type in your kid's information and uh, and they get a letter from Santa for ten dollars? So, what do you think of those two ideas? Do you, if you were to pick one, like what would you pick? Probably the 
Santa letter, actually. All right. So I did both of those. Uh, the Santa letter. So the first one, seeing telegram, so zero, none. Like I didn't get any pity orders from my friends, which I'm, I'm not bitter about it, but you would have thought somebody I know would have ordered one of these things. And yet if you look at the Santa letters, I sold millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of those. Now, I mean, you can go, I mean, it's still in business and it sends hundreds of thousands of letters a month and, and it's a, it's a, it's a great business with all kinds of other things added onto it. And, but the thing is, is that when you're sitting on the one side of that, they both sound kind of plausible, right? And yet one of them was a catastrophic failure and one of them, uh, was, was knocked it out of the park. It was profitable and great business. And I don't know how you would tell those two things apart on the, other than I can say that things that work for me work right away. Not perfectly, but you get some glimmer of interest. You get somebody, uh, you get some number of people who say, oh, that's kind of cool. And, and what happens with most of my failures is nobody cares. Nobody. And that's the thing that it's hard to get over. But I mean, I tried so many, many, many things. The, th- the thing is, the thing about failing is that you, you do, is that for me, I think there's lots of people that have much better track records than I have. Um, I'm, I'm willing to shoot stuff very quickly. What I never give up on is my business. So PageWise eventually sold, uh, you know, for a number that was, that was satisfying to the shareholders. Um, but, and so it's like, you don't give up. You just, you know, say that wasn't a good idea. Um, and, and also try not to internalize it. It's like you didn't fail. Uh, what that thing that you tried failed, but you, uh, you know, you don't wrap. And, and the cool thing about it is when you're successful, you also don't, don't get that either. You don't get to say, I'm all that, right? It's like, oh, that one worked. I'm very grateful. Um, and so it's, it's a way not to be swung around by the, um, you know, by the inevitable ups and downs. You just can't. I remember back during the boom. I read magazines and I don't know. Anyway, somebody had a t-shirt that said, I am not my stock price. And, uh, and, and you kind of get that. I, whatever, whatever my company's stock is trading for today, that is not my value or where I wrap my value of it. So from there, you started another company, Demand Media. <coughs> I didn't start that one. Or so didn't start that one. I sold, uh, PageWise to Demand Media. And then, uh, Demand Media went public and it had a really, Big IPO, it was $2 billion valuation. And when that happens, and I was the chief innovation officer, and when that happens, all kinds of people invite you to come speak to their group, right? And uh, this was kind of new to me. And good speakers do something very interesting. Good speakers, um, they get the same speech over and over again. Yes. And I am not a good speaker. I'm terrible. Uh, because I never did the same speech twice. I just can't do it. I just cannot bring myself to do it. It's like phoning it in. It's like uh, every audience is different. Every audience is there for a different reason. Everybody's, I mean, the whole thing is different. For me just to show up and recite lines, you know, like, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. It's like, ugh, I just can't do it. So I would get all these invitations, and I would say yes to many of them. And for every one of them, I would sit back and say, hmm, why are they here? What are they doing? And I would write them a speech. Um, and after a while, what happened is I noticed that a lot of these speeches had the same themes developing yeah. throughout them. Same technology, same effects of technology. Uh, and I said, wow, 
this sounds a lot like a book. And um, so I, I wrote a book, many of the chapters of which <clears throat> are actually... Infinite progress. Exactly, infinite progress. Uh, wrote that book, many of the chapters of which are going to be speeches I, I wrote. I mean, it doesn't read like that, I edit it at all, but that's really the genesis of it. I would speak to a group about food, and I would talk about the future of hunger. And then I would speak to a group about energy, and I would talk about the future of energy. And over time, that became the bulk of this book, Infinite Progress. And so then, you know, you, this morphed into <clears throat> you going into the publishing business. And how did that come about? Because obviously then you left the main media and then, you know, went to GigaOM. And so I'm, I've been in the publishing business forever. So PageWise uh, started in 2000, was a publishing company. We hired writers, they wrote material, we put it online. We loved... Um, non-fiction, we loved uh, action-oriented things, we loved how-to, and all of that. Um, and so, and I'm a writer, right? And I write and I publish. And so, publishing is, 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 is kind of in my blood. And I started a company called Knowingly, uh, two or three years ago, and uh, Knowingly um, was going to be, it was a publishing company, is a publishing company, and it was going to publish a bunch of different stuff. And then, um, I read about Gigaom and uh, how uh, they let everybody go and they shut down business and, and the assets were going to be sold. And I had always been such a huge fan of Gigaom. I went to you know Gigaom events. I read Gigaom, and it was just seemed a, a tragedy to me that that this property would just kind of vanish. Um, so I put in a bid on it, uh, knowing we put in a bid on it, and we purchased it. And now. Um, uh, GigaOM is, is, you know, up and running and some of the people who wanted to rejoin have joined and, and it's doing its thing. Along the way, I got very interested in artificial intelligence. I wrote another book, uh, that's coming out at the end of the year and, um, by Atria, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. And it's, uh, called The Fourth Age. And it's about robots and artificial intelligence and whether computers can become conscious. And, uh, and so forth. And what really intrigued me about those questions, the first two especially, are the robots going to take all the jobs? And is AI going to, you know, kind of take over? Is it something to fear? What, what really intrigued me about them is how informed, smart people had radically different opinions about them. Like, people you would assume. Yes. And yet they have these incredibly divergent opinions. And that's what got me into it, because I was like, I wonder why that is. So I got very interested in artificial intelligence. I started writing this other book, which was really hard work. It was hard, 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 hard. Um, and why was it hard? Because you had to reconcile all these different ideas and complexities of... It's one thing to sit back and talk about what you think about the future. I think technology is going to do this and all of that. Um, you kind of can't be wrong in the sense that that's your opinion and what you think and what you are working on. And if instead your your goal is to say, I'm going to take this complex issue, which exists on top of all of these kind of big philosophical questions, and I'm going to treat it journalistically so that somebody could read this book and, and not really ever infer what I think. Because the thesis of the book is, here's maybe a way to think about those things, to, to apply your own value system to them and figure out what you think. And that's just much harder because you're not just kind of spouting off your opinion. You're, very, you're trying to be very respectful to every position and understand it. So when you ask the question, can computers become conscious? You know, you have to say, well, what is consciousness? Why are we conscious? And that's not a, 
I'll just knock that off before I go to work right. this morning, right? So I wrote that book, and this was at the same time that um, I acquired Gigaom. And Gigaom is primarily a research company. So we, we do research on technologies that uh, enterprises use, uh, cloud and Internet of Things, and, and luckily, artificial intelligence. And so Gigaom is doing more and more in the AI space because uh, I don't think there is a, you know, there's no bigger... No matter what you think about artificial intelligence and where it's ultimately going, whether you think it's got a modest future or whether you think whatever, uh, it's big. It's like all the headlines you read that say it's big, none of those are stated. Things that say, okay, the robots are going to take over or this or this or this, those may or may not be right, but, but artificial intelligence is is this thing whose time has finally come. I mean, it's the ability to make better decisions. And, you know, our, our descendants are going to look back on this and they're going to think we just kind of staggered through lives, our lives like drunken sailors on shore leave, just making these decisions just kind of randomly. Like, think about how you decide. Like, when you go through your day, you know, uh, where should I have lunch? Who should I hang out with? Uh, what clothes should I buy? What should I read? What should I watch on TV? Every single one of those things, you just kind of wing it because there's no... You know, there's there's no uh, guru, there's no oracle telling you what to do. And there's about to be an oracle that will, you don't have to do it. But the oracle will say, this would be the best thing for you to do. And so that got me into uh, AI, that got me writing. Uh, in AI, I want to talk about that for a second. So what, <coughs> what are some companies that are doing some fascinating things, or you believe that they are, so people can, because when people think about that, a lot of times they're not, they don't really know how to think about artificial intelligence and how it can be applied today and how there are companies out there, you know, leveraging it and using it. So you mean from a business from understanding? From a business standpoint, yeah. So I would say there are three things that a, a business leader uh, would find useful. So the first is um, understand the basic platforms. So you've got Amazon, you've got Google, you've got, uh, well, Facebook, um, you have organizations who not only, um, let's just take Amazon, you know, not only is there a place to put your data, but there's algorithms up there that can do all kinds of smart stuff to your data. So you don't need a data scientist, you don't need, it's like these platforms exist where 99% of the work's done for you. You need to find your data that you have and ask the questions from it. That's what you need to kind of think about. Like look around and say, you know, if I had infinite knowledge of everything, what would I want to know? And then you say, well, where, where, where might that answer be hiding? And usually it's in some colossal amount of data. Usually, you know, you think of a, here's a bad example. This is not an AI example. Um, there's an antidepressant that's been on the market forever called Wellbutrin. It's, I don't know, 50 years on the market. And some of the people taking Wellbutrin, um, reported, you know, when they check in at the, uh, my cravings for cigarettes are down a bit. So a few people just kind of anecdotally report this. My cravings for cigarettes are down. And so it gets back to Pfizer, and Pfizer's like, huh, we should study that. And so they study it, and they find out, well, and behold, Wellbutrin is great for smoking cessation. So they rebrand it. The same exact drug is Zyban, and you can get a prescription of it and stop smoking. Now, uh, I think about how we figured that out. Like just some people were like, hey, I happened to notice this. And then through this process, somehow the information got... I mean, 
There's a million things like that that exist in the world that we're never going to stumble across because we, you know, look, I'm bullish on humans, uh, way over, bullish on humans over computers. If, if you have to choose, I, you know, when I watch a Terminator movie, I'm definitely rooting for the people. But, um, and there, there are things that we do really well that I don't think machines will be able to do anytime soon, if ever. But, um, but you got to give credit where credit is due, and what machines are really good at doing is sorting through large amounts of data, looking for things in a way that it's kind of like we don't. The way our memories are set up, we don't remember data really. We just kind of remember conclusions for the most part, yes. and we use those conclusions just to kind of weed our way through life, and and, that, and that's what we do, and it, it works for us. But uh, so the first thing I'm rambling here. First thing are platforms. So learn about uh, the learn about IBM Watson. It's like you can use that for free. Uh, you can take your data and you can you can use Watson on it. And it's like that's a great place to start because you don't you need developers, but you don't need data scientists. The second thing I would do is buy a smart speaker, whether it's a, a Google Home or Amazon Alexa, uh, and put it on your desk because what those are uh, they're like Siri or um, uh, Microsoft's is called Cortana. Uh, but let's just, we'll just pick Amazon again. Um, you put this on your desk, Alexa, and you just start talking to it, asking it collect, uh, questions, and, and, and it's really easy to build things for that and for, uh, Google Home. Um, and so you have to kind of rewind to the beginning of the app era, which I think the app store has like two million apps in it. And you have to go back in time to when there's just a few thousand. And that's kind of where we are on those platforms. And they give you, as an end user, a really clear sense uh, how voice recognition is working, how... I mean, they're just a way to be very close to it for $149. And then the third thing I would do, um, and if I had to prioritize... Well, I, I'm not going to do that because it matters by situation. But the third thing I would do are chatbots. So um, Alexa's great, as an example. It has four or five, six million users. I don't know. Um but you take something like Facebook Messenger. Uh, what you see around the world is that people use chatbots uh, to interact with the web. Because if you think about it, you have a if you have a desktop machine, you're sitting in front of a big monitor. Uh, the web's great. You like you know go to your thing and thing. But when you're trying to do it on this, it's like, yes. But a chatbot, on the other hand, it's just Q and A. It's just text and. And what happens is around the world, especially areas where uh, mobile dominates, we uh, we see chatbots being the the way that people want to interact with it because you can just talk to it. And so I would study up on chatbots and platforms for building them. And if you understood those three things, you you will know what to do next. That's fascinating. Uh, what do you think about? Robotics. I mean, this whole you know self-driving cars. I mean, where do you think this? We're in the next 10, 15 years. What should people expect to start happening in their lives? Because a lot of times you read things, and you know, it's talking about the fact people won't be driving cars near as much. You'll be, you know, self-driving cars will be significantly on the road. I mean, where where is all this heading for people in the near term? And how quickly will we actually see this unfold? Self-driving cars in particular, or robotics in general? Uh, I just say robotics in general. Robots are hard because, um, I, I forgot who it is. Um, somebody in the robotics industry says that if the robots, if there's ever a robot uprising, just wait 15 minutes and all the batteries will run dead. 
Because it's like, that's, you know, and, and whenever you watch, uh, robot videos on like YouTube or whatever, they always have to speed them up because the speed at which the robots move is often slow. Um, we have for computers something called Moore's Law, which basically says computers are doubling in power every couple of years. And, um, the cool thing about it is all technology, almost all technology seems to behave in that exact same way because they don't double every two years, but they double every n years. So maybe every 20 years something doubles or every, every six months something doubles. And the power of that doubling is, uh, is something that humans radically underestimate because very few things in our lives, nothing in the physical world doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles. Not doubles. That right. right. You don't wake up with two kids and four, then eight, then 16, then yeah. 32, and 64. So we really underestimate what doubling can do over time. Um, so what it means in a very real sense is while it took us 3,000 years to get from the abacus to the iPad, in just 30 years, we're going to have something as far ahead of the iPad as it is ahead of the abacus. So how does that relate to robotics? It's like I'm bullish on robots in terms of, uh, you know, Rosie the Robot doing your, uh, you know, zipping around cleaning stuff up. Interestingly, we, we, we live closer to the time the Jetsons was set in than we do to the time the Jetsons was made. Um, so we're closer to the world it saw than the world it came from. And we don't have a Rosie, right? And, and the thing is, is that all the, all the Moore's Law kinds of things that are happening in the robotics world, they're not doubling every two years. They're doubling slower than that. So robots are hard because you've got the kinetic world you're interacting with. You've got power issues. You've got materials. Um, and they're very hard. So it's natural that computers and AI are, the, are kind of evolving at a pace that's, that's dizzying, while robots seem to be taking longer and longer and longer. The first commercial robot, of course, well, that I can think of is the Roomba. And, you know, yes. sips around. But then that was years ago, and yet you don't have kind of um, the equivalent going around washing your windows or anything like that. So I'm bullish on robots, but I wouldn't expect anything to happen. Um, I sure, I certainly wouldn't worry. About, I, I don't worry um, about unemployment from automation the way other people do. Because um, what I have noticed is that with these technologies, we always employ them. We always use the humans use technology to increase their productivity and therefore their wages. And that's how come we can have constant innovation in this country while we have rising yes. uh, income over the long period of time. Unemployment in the United States is four to nine percent always. Take the depression out, which was, you know, it's a novelist event, but four to nine percent, four to ten percent. Unemployment always is in there, even though along the way we, we, you know, electrify industry and invent machinery and harness steam power and Four to nine percent, four to nine percent, four to nine percent, over and over. Um, self-driving cars, that being said, self-driving cars, that's uh, one of those things where the technology is largely there, like you could have them, uh, but regular, you know, but like socially and from a regulatory basis. And, you know, if, if, if a person crashes a car, once every 100,000 times they drive. I don't know that I'm working on that. And a self-driving car does it once every million times. People are still going to perceive the self-driving car as worse. Yes. Um, and so they have all that to overcome. So uh, I, I don't feel like I can predict adoption of those because it, it isn't a technical question. It's a sociological. You have to think about everybody who's impacted. You have to think about this hybrid mix of self-driving, non-self-driving. You have to think about different places. You might have municipalities outlaw cars or drivers entirely within their city limits. I, I don't know. So one of the things I saw you bring up is human immortality, and I'd love to have a little, just a really brief 
you know, <clears throat> insight into kind of how you see that unfolding, you know, and people living longer because that's just a fascinating topic because people, you know, they don't want to know, like, you know, are we going to start living to 90 to 100 or more as common in our own lifetime? Is that something that's going to be happening or unfolding? Yes. Um, first of all, you won't be immortal. Uh, you'll probably, even if your body presumably could in theory be perpetuated indefinitely, you'll only live to about 6,700. Because that's how long it will take for some freakish, like, wily coyote piano falling off the top of a building onto you thing to happen. Like, you will still be mortal in the sense that eventually something catastrophic will happen, maybe comically catastrophic. Uh, well, 6,700, that's a lot compared to where we think now. Yes, yes. No, no, no. I'm not. Uh, so, well, let me back up and, and answer that. Not in isolation. So, um, we build technology, and technology is stuff that we use to multiply what we're able to do. And technology, like I said a minute ago, it grows at this rate, this exponential rate. And what the, the implication of that is, if you think about it, is that all technical problems we're going to solve. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things in life that aren't technical problems. Um, you know, hatred and envy and yes. all of that um, aren't technical problems. And in the end, the great challenge is for us to be better people. And technology helps with that a little, lets the steam off, but it doesn't really. But the good news is that anything that is purely a technical problem, purely technical, uh, almost by definition has a technical solution. And given that technology doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles, um, we will see that it, uh, we will see the, the technological solutions to these, to these questions. And so some things are obvious, like disease, that's a technical problem. Like, you don't have to have disease. It's a, it's a techno technological problem. And so you will most likely live to see the end of disease because, um, we, because our technology grows faster than the intelligence of the pathogen. So the question then becomes, is mortality, is human mortality, a technical problem? Do you have to die? Um, and I don't think so. Um, I think you only age for four reasons, and they are all appear to be technical problems. There's no reason that they can't be uh, solved. And as Aubrey de Grey, the researcher in this, uh, points out, all you have to do is get to a point what he calls escape velocity, where you are extending life expectancy more than a year every year. Once you get into that, 13, if you extend life expectancy 13 months every year, then, then as you're getting older, the technology is staying ahead of you. And so that's what I think will happen. Unfortunately, the, the downside of it is all these technologies, when they come out, are available generally to the wealthy. And it's always been the consolation of the poor that, you know, no matter how wealthy somebody is, you can eventually dance on their gravestone if you so desire to. And if we ever become a society where there's a group of rich people who live forever and everybody else, the rest of us have to die, uh, that will be uncomfortable. But the good news is most of all of these technologies fall in price. They have every 10 years as well. And so eventually that happens. You know, aspirin eventually becomes essentially free. Even though in 1899, I'm sure it was, um, you know, more expensive. Exactly. So the last question I have for you is, uh, I love your TEDx speech. I think it's fantastic, and I'll have it in the show notes for people. 
You know, I just want you to talk about achieving greatness and what sabotages people from the research that you've done on that. Because I think it's eye-opening for people to have this realization, and it's uh, something that I think people would find pretty interesting. That began, uh, that talk came out of an exercise I had, which was, uh, I wondered if there were best practices for having, you know, there are these people who have enormous impacts on the world. I mean, you name your favorite. I mean, you know, all throughout history, there are people who do something and it has an effect that we're still feeling today. Or they do something in their life and it affects a million people. There are, there are those. And, and I wanted to know, like, was there something they knew that we didn't know? Was there some practice they were doing that we, that I didn't know? And so I just started finding these people and calling them or emailing them and asking if I could interview them. One thing I never, I don't mention in that speech is one thing is I had to change my approach to them because almost everyone said, when I told them what I was trying to figure out, they said, well, I'm not a great person. I mean, I you know, I just did my thing. Uh, I haven't achieved greatness. I haven't, and I mean, we're talking people who by any objective measure have done amazing things. And it isn't some all shucks, false humility. They are just regular people who did something and it caught on or, or what have you and became something big, but they don't, I never found a single person who in any way felt special. Like there was something about them, you know, some aha moment where a beam of light came down from heaven and angels sung and all of that, that anointed them or appointed them as to have this destiny of, of this great thing. What I found is that they were without a doubt, all people um, who were very relatable, very much had problems, and they didn't, they didn't, any of them seem superhuman. And that was a very empowering thing to me. And if you listen to the talk, there are a lot of examples in there. It goes into a lot more detail. But that's the basic idea, is that the people that had these outcomes, the only one thing they all had in common is that they tried something, and they stuck with it, and that was it. If you think about it, that's what they did. They did something small, and they did something a little more, 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 until one day we're like, wow, that is a great person. But from their perspective, it was just a lot of hard work. But taking action is the key in implementation. Absolutely. That was the conclusion of the talk, is that in the end, if you want to be in that company, if you want to have that kind of impact on the world, you, you, you can do one of two things. You can be paralyzed by the enormity of that of that idea, or you can just start, take the first step. And that's what the talk is about. That's fantastic. So how can people reach you, find out more about the things that you're working on? I'm the easiest person in the world to find. I'm, uh, my, my email address is byronreese at gmail. I'm super easy to find. But go to byronreese.com. It's being revamped. And um, and that's where you'll be able to find links to stuff I write and and um, and, and so forth. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. And we'll have all Byron's information in the show notes and a lot of the things that we spoke about. So uh, we will talk to you all later.